Welcome to Non-Consensus Investing. I'm Ram Alawalia, your host and CIO at Lumida Wealth, where we specialize in the craft of alternative investments. At Lumida, we help guide clients through the intricacies of managing substantial wealth so they don't have to shoulder the burden alone. Through this podcast, we draw back the curtain to reveal the strategies employed by the best in the business for their high net worth clients so that you too can invest beyond the ordinary. In this episode of Non-Consensus Investing, we have Dylan Patel from Semi-Analysis, alongside Meltem and Ram, delve into the dynamic world of semiconductors, AI, crypto, and the cloud. We'll discuss NVIDIA's market position, Intel's challenges, and ARM's potential to revolutionize the industry. The conversation also covers geopolitical impacts on the semiconductor sector, such as potential scenarios in Taiwan and the influence of the open-source movement, highlighting CoreWeave's rapid growth. This podcast is a must-listen for individuals interested in understanding the semiconductor industry's dynamics and its intersection with AI, crypto, and the cloud. Hey, Meltem, how are you? Hi, Rob. How are you? Good to see you. You've been busy. You had the Paris ETH conference. I think you were in, in Copenhagen, New Hampshire, New York. Yeah, I've actually cut back on the the conferences a, a lot. It's very tiring and I think a little bit distracting. You know what? I've been in a reading and researching phase, much like you have. And one of the things I'm really excited about, a thesis that I have been excited about just as an investor for the last five years or so, is energy, computation and connectivity and, and crypto and what our digital future holds um, for those three sectors. My background, I'm an oil and gas girl, started on the trading side, went into the upstream exploration production side, midstream, downstream refining chemicals, did some mining work, um, like materials, physical materials, mining, not, not Bitcoin mining, before I got into to the crypto side. So it's been really fun to see the reemergence of this narrative around not just the bits and bytes, like the last decade has really been about software and venture capital and this idea of scaling, hyperscaling through digital services and software. And I feel like the pendulum is is shifting a bit. And uh, now we're talking about infrastructure and atoms again, the world of, of CapEx, which I love. And so um, I've been spending a lot of time just delving into that future. So what's happening on the energy side, obviously a lot of conversation around energy transition, more efficient utilization of, of energy resources in, in different ways, new generation sources, um, the world of, of computation. And I think the AI narrative certainly has, has been a huge catalyst there, but obviously even just looking at ASICs and Bitcoin mining, the story emerging around specialized hardware, specialized data centers, the economics, both on the CapEx and OpEx side, really fascinating. And then the world of crypto, I think that's where everyone knows me from. I think people might have this perception that the majority of my time is, is spent in the world of crypto, which historically it has been. But again, just understanding that value chain at the end of the day, so many things in our digital world are just so dependent on our ability to secure energy and to secure computation, which is semis and, and racking data center connectivity to relay that computation. So I'm excited that we're finally getting to have this conversation because I feel like we're at an inflection point. To that very long response, less traveling, more focusing, more reading, more writing, more just starting to meet with people who are operating in these different uh, verticals because those worlds 
are starting to converge and you're seeing those headlines emerging in real time. So it's very fun for me because I feel like this little it's niche that I've been excited about is finally entering the awareness, uh, the global awareness, if you will, the zeitgeist on tech Twitter. And so it's been lovely because there are so many intelligent conversations happening in so many different forums. And it's just, it's been really great to see. I agree. You and I had a fantastic lunch a few months ago uh, mm -hmm. about semiconductors, energy, and, and AI. And mm -hmm. I, I realized that we're tracking similar themes. And we're pleased to have Dylan Patel join us, who is the author, and he's got a team, he'll introduce himself in a moment, of semi-analysis. And I've been reading 500 pages of semi-analysis. I'm just putting it on screen here just so you can diligence that. <laughs> These are the semi-analysis newsletters that have been compiled in my Substack, Google Docs, and I've actually been also working with AI to identify the key themes here. But to your point, there are a lot of key trends at work. One is energy. We're excited about energy. We've talked about that before in multiple different ways, including the nuclear renaissance. You saw Microsoft investing in nuclear technology to generate electricity for their data centers, have a growing demand for electricity and also GPU chips and bring us to semiconductors. And I believe in the next 10 years, we're going to see a crop of opportunities in the semiconductor state. So yeah, and on that, I just want to say nuclear isn't the only generation source. I think more broadly, companies like Crusoe and others have really introduced and helped uh, refine the idea about the economics of co-location, particularly for stranded energy assets to get to market like at the end of the day and energy is the the most relevant form of currency that we have so the ability to use different types of computers okay. there we go my internet uh, my microphone was not uh connecting properly because i had this up and it was outputting audio through it so sorry about that you're coming through loud and clear so first off thanks for joining us we're both subscribers and big fans of your newsletter i was just sharing on screen i've got a google doc that's 500 pages long and this is what I read before I go to sleep. Actually, it doesn't put me to sleep, but I find it quite interesting. And it's been really fantastic content. So if you really want to dig into the semiconductor space, you should subscribe to Semi-Analysis. It's top flight. So there's a lot of content we want to dig in with you, Dylan. And Meltem and I approach this from an investor perspective. We see a long-term enduring trend around semiconductors and then trends within that. There are a variety of trends depending on where you are in the value chain from round trip investments we're seeing Nvidia do with inflection to reshoring in semiconductors to the lithography layer. And we're looking for emerging dominant monopolists. So there, there's a lot to discuss. Uh, let's get right into it. Do you want to introduce yourself, Dylan? Sure. I'm Dylan Patel, chief analyst of semi-analysis. So we're a semiconductor supply chain and research firm. I'm here in the U.S., got another person in the U.S., and we've got folks in Japan, Singapore, and Taiwan. And so we mainly analyze the supply chain. I came from a data science background before, so still very in tune with the uh, algorithms and such. But there's a lot of various other areas that we research and discuss around AI, but mostly around semiconductor supply chain. So that's a quick intro. Great. Let's get into it. So if we look at the value chain for semiconductors, here's my broad summary You've got the chip designers, the NVIDIA, AMDs of the world, Marvels, perhaps Broadcom. You've got IP providers like SoftBank's Arm, Cadence, Rambus. You've got 
the EDA software companies that do electronic design automation. I think of like CAD software for chip design, the foundry layer, Taiwan Semiconductor, GFS, and obviously there's a lot of CapEx subsidies from government and perhaps Chips Act and other, there's a Eurozone version of that. Japan announced some subsidy for foundries as well. We'll get into there. There's a lithography layer with ASML, packaging and testing. Finally, the OEM, cloud and, and AI providers, the hyperscalers, and we're gonna throw core weave into that too. So if you look at that value chain, where do you find the most opportunity? What layers within that have the most interest and opportunity? It's hard to just say one specific spot in the supply chain has the most interest and in, in opportunity. There's certainly some areas that have more versus less, right? Like obviously client devices are in a lull right now with smartphone sales slowing down, PC sales slowing down. But on the flip side of the coin, there's also obviously a lot of tremendous interest for what's going on in the AR VR space. But of course, all of the, the attention nowadays is in the supply chain around whether it be AI or automotive or those sorts of areas that are dynamically changing more. So there's obviously more interest there. And then there's changes up and downstream, right? From manufacturing to packaging, to IP, to chips themselves, to the deployment of them for to support those supply chains. So that, that's, yeah, there, there's a lot of opportunities up and down the supply chain based on what's changing in the end market and, and, and with society at the, the end goal, end states. Right know? on, right on. Product cycles are off, but we have new product cycles emerging to your point, AR, VR. Let's double click into chip designer. So NVIDIA obviously has captured a lot of focus and they've got emerging competition from AMD and, and Intel is seeking to do an end around the CUDA ecosystem, which has created a lot of engineer lock-in. And then you've got Broadcom, who's done a number of M&A transactions, cut costs, and they're also on the upswing. You've got Qualcomm as well, that's looking to apply a similar model of licensing their various chip designs. Where do you see NVIDIA's competitive advantage and potentially in decline? How enduring is that trend? versus new players that are seeking to take share of NVIDIA's dominant market position. Sure, sure. There's quite a few different spots where they are going to maintain their strength, and then there's other aspects where they won't uh, maintain. When you think about chip design, you might think, oh, Intel, AMD, those are the areas that are going to be more competitive. But in reality, the areas where that are where there's going to be more Competition is actually going to be how most people access AI compute, which is going to be from the cloud. And so companies like Google's in-house chips are just as important, if not more important to watch because they're producing far more, right? And then there's companies like Broadcom that help them design those and, and folks like that. So th those are just as important, if anything, relative to the, the main markets of, hey, AMD and to how are they going to compete? Now, in the area outside of the cloud silicon, right? And of course, Amazon has their own silicon and, and that's what Outchip and Marvell and Microsoft has their own silicon that they're working on and Meta has their own silicon that they're working on with Broadcom again for Meta. Everyone has their own silicon that they're working on, but outside of these major players that are working on their own silicon, NVIDIA will mostly remain the dominant player. Now, that doesn't mean that, hey, this pie is growing so big that AMD or Intel can't grab a slice, mostly AMD, but that slice is not quite as big as what others, the cloud share is, right? So cloud is really where you have to focus on. Yeah. So on that topic, I think one interesting sort of thing to talk about here, Dylan, Dylan disappeared. Let's see if he comes back. 
I'm still here. Sorry. No worries. So I think one interesting question that Ram and I have talked about a lot, what you're talking about, I think with the cloud providers moving upstream is this idea of vertical integration, right? And I think we are starting to see the larger players go vertically integrated where they're producing the silicon, then deploying it in their own data centers, and then offering that to the end client. Do you think that vertical integration is going to become a more dominant trend as time goes on, or is it going to be limited to just specific software sectors that are driving that desire to vertically integrate and control costs at every step of the value chain and really control and OPEX margin, right? Yeah, so I think obviously vertical integration is only possible by the biggest tech companies and, and their share of total purchases is growing and it has been growing for the decade. Amazon versus, sorry, Amazon versus Google versus the others, their share of total compute resources is growing. But that doesn't mean that the clouds are going to own everything, right? Plenty of people don't want to go in the cloud or they want to go in the cloud, but they don't want to do a managed service. They just simply want to use them as an infrastructure provider. And so the stratification of who gets what compute is very large and wide. And I think that brings up another interesting trend. I guess one of the things I've seen emerging a lot more with enterprises, like historically, the move has been to shift towards cloud. Now I think we're starting to see resurgence, which is people shifting away from cloud and saying, okay, we want to host our own infrastructure, right? Use a hosting provider or have our own infrastructure on-prem, right? Run our own bare metal. So I guess, how is that also driving some of the profitability around these larger tech behemoths pursuing that vertical integration? Yeah. So in that sense, there are like a lot of banks have moved some aspects to cloud, but a lot of them will remain on-premises forever. And there's many other companies, whether for security reasons or what have you, they want to remain on-premises. Like in some cases, like, why would I move to AWS when if I'm Walmart, Amazon will always be a competitor. And then when you look deeper, it's actually like, how is Google now a competitor? Sure. They don't ship things, but they, they're disaggregating me from the customer, right? In the case that I might use Google to search for products rather than going to a physical Walmart store or walmart.com, right? In the case of major enterprises, more and more as these major cloud companies get more, more and more powerful, they will likewise have more and more ability to compete with their customers or be perceived as a bigger competitor, right? And so there, you don't want to go use their cloud. You want to use it on-premises. And NVIDIA in the same way is through their software is trying to make it easier and easier for people to deploy on-premises, whether it's in their physical own physical data center where they help you install the servers to, or work with companies like Supermicro and such to help install servers, all the way to the software stacks provided, management software, and even working with various co-location partners, right? Like Equinix and others, making it easier to get access to GPUs and such there, right? So NVIDIA obviously has a vested interest in people going directly to customers and likewise going directly to their hardware rather than go, getting disaggregated by a cloud like Intel and AMD have, right? They understand the long-term risk, which is, hey, Amazon will make their own chips. Google will make their own chips. Meta will make their own chips. And we need to have a strong moat. And so for the case of, hey, let me make it easier to do on-premises or co-location. And then likewise, if I'm going to the cloud, why don't I go to a company that doesn't make their own chips? Like, why don't I support them? So of course, CoreWeave is there. Of course, Lambda Labs is there. Oracle is very strong in GPU cloud as well, right? Because NVIDIA is helping Oracle mm. by giving them good allocations, by, by Oracle having good data centers, but Oracle's not trying to make AI chips, right? So it's like the perfect right. match for them as well there, right? So they're investing in their own clouds, like uh, NVIDIA DGX cloud, which is on-premises for NVIDIA's own data centers, as well as in the major clouds, investing in startups like CoreWeave and Lambda Labs, and also partnering with some of these larger firms like Oracle Cloud, 
to fight back against the dominance and increasing right. dominance of a Google right. and NVIDIA, a Google and Amazon and right. Microsoft. You touched on a competitive tension here, which is that NVIDIA is selling H100s and GPU infrastructure to Google and Amazon and Microsoft. And those hyperscalers are developing their own technology, working with the Broadcoms of the world. And we'll walk through that tech stack later because that bet will continue. They're CapEx bets that you can make uh, there. On the other hand, you have the core weaves of the world, which are Switzerland. They're not competing with NVIDIA. They received an investment from NVIDIA. And you mentioned Oracle, of course, which has a good allocation. Oracle isn't competing with NVIDIA or seeking to make its own chips. I saw that Microsoft Oracle deal, which is really funny, strange pet fellows, right? Microsoft has their own SQL product. Oracle has their own database product. And here's Microsoft doing a, a commercial arrangement there. So why don't we focus on uh, Core, if you could, for a bit. How do you see CoreWeave's opportunity emerging due to the fact that they're not competing with NVIDIA? Do they have a preferential play to make here versus the hyperscalers as far as it, in terms of providing cloud AI capability? Yeah, so if you go back to, especially the beginning of the year, right? If you want to access NVIDIA GPUs, the new ones, the H100s, you, the first place you could get them was Corbyn and Lambda Labs and Oracle. They're still not available on Microsoft. Amazon is pricing them in an absurd manner, literally like more than 2x the price of Corbyn. And Google's also pricing is not the best and they got them much later. And that's a couple of reasons, right? One is if I'm Amazon, I want to use my GPUs for my internal workloads or sign them away to my biggest customers, make sure I get to retain them, right? And likewise for Google, right? Let's say, hey, if I buy X thousands of GPUs, of course I have my own chips, but my internal AI teams want to also use them, right? To experiment with algorithms because GPUs are a bit more flexible and things like that. Mm -hmm. But furthermore, like I'm, again, I'm going to sign them away to my biggest customers. And Microsoft is, hey, like, why would I rent a GPU out when I could sell a service, right? When I could sell you Copilot instead when I could uh, integrate it into Bing, et cetera, right? Like when I can use it to further my own services, which are obviously going to make me more money than buying, than renting GPUs. And for NVIDIA, this is like a very scary thing, right? Which is like, hey, if I release the best chips, my customers can't actually access them easily. So they help CoreWave, they help Lambda, they help Oracle really get set up fast as possible. And Oracle, CoreWave being the biggest of them, or sorry, the fastest of them to implement H100s in the cloud and rent them out. And so, of course, or for NVIDIA, it's, hey, if my customer has an AI budget of, let's just say, $100 million, right? They're going to spend this much on AI. Let's just say half of it's going to go to software anyways. The other half is going to go to compute, right? And in the case of if the other half goes to compute, do I want Amazon to make a huge margin on top of the GPUs or do I want to make all the margin, right? By incentivizing competition, they're reducing competition. They're reducing the margins of the clouds overall, right? Hey, if CoreWeave and Lambda didn't exist, maybe Amazon's prices for, for cloud GPUs would be even higher than they are now. And, mm. and NVIDIA would be getting a smaller share of the total wallet. Right. So NVIDIA's got a strategic interest in CoreWeave. They also made that round trip trade around inflection. Meltem, do you want to introduce your capital cycle kind of observation? Yeah, I think this is where it starts to get interesting as an investor. And this again... I'm going to bring Dylan. I've pinged Dylan before for his perspective on ASICs and FPGAs and aspects of the crypto hardware lifecycle to which I think he, this was maybe a year and a half ago, he responded with some skepticism, which is where my love for Dylan began. I was like, all right, 
given, given it to me straight. But look, I think the interesting thing has been if we look at sort of capital cycles, there is the circularity of capital challenge, particularly in the earlier stage, particularly software ecosystem, where there's a ton of capital coming in. It starts with venture capital. We're seeing it right now in AI. There's an estimate out there. I think Andreessen Horowitz, A16Z, put this number out. 80% of venture capital that is going into AI startups is going to get allocated to compute, right? Whether that's semis, people buying GPUs, whether that's cloud costs, whether that's data center and GPU costs, but fully 80% of that venture capital coming in is actually going to get redeployed into both public and private companies that are providing the hardware and the services to enable that computation to happen. And we saw a similar thing in, in crypto. Just to draw a parallel back to the world I come from, crypto services have been dependent on this continuous spigot of capital coming from the venture side, but now also from the public market side. There are a ton of crypto miners who are able to tap capital markets at a very low cost. So their cost of selling equity, their cost of issuing debt is very low. They can use that to raise a lot of capital. They pour that capital into ASICs, into brownfield data center renovation retrofit to service the GPU market, greenfield data center build, colo containerization, whatever it may be. But they are dependent. Their economics are fully dependent on this ongoing spigot of capital. And without that spigot of capital, right, a lot of this market collapses. So I guess part of my challenge with what we're seeing on the AI side is right now there's a ton of capital coming into the top of the funnel because people believe there will be big winners on the software and services side. I don't think it's really clear how you monetize the AI side. And in my view, the question I ask is, am I better off buying AWS shares or buying NVIDIA because they're going to get most of the capital allocated to the sector? Or am I better off making a higher risk private market bet on one of the services startups that we're building on top of this infrastructure? And I wish more people would ask this question because I think if we did, we would find that many of these businesses are in fact not great investments and perhaps the better investment, not very popular with LPs, but perhaps the better investment would be owning Amazon or Meta or NVIDIA or AMD or Equinix. A lot of AI head fakes, which you've talked about, Dylan, as well. So what are your reactions there on where to better focus to benefit? Look, NVIDIA is the obvious thesis that's done well, but NVIDIA has its own supply chain. Then you've got the Amazon, Meta, Google, which has their own supply chain and Broadcom is helping to play a key role in that. How do you see the, those key value drivers and to Melton's point on the private side, where are the best returns on capital? Sure. So on the private market side, right, I think that's a really interesting theory. Uh, I like that sort of capital allocation theory that you mentioned, right? It's folks are obviously, to be clear, most of the AI, AI startups working in various algorithms are not going to get any business or they're not going to get enough business to sustain. But some of those companies will turn into lottery tickets, right? I think it's pretty clear if you had invested in, say, character AI last year, amazing returns, right? Because character, now they're raising in the market again and amazing valuation and their usage statistics are off the chart, right? Like people using character AI for the average user uses it for two hours a day. And it's like, what? Why? You would think what, why? But then it makes sense when you start looking into the demographics of you use, who's using it and such. But it's some folks are at least getting the usage. Some folks are not getting any usage, but they're starting to generate, they're getting very little usage, but they're charging right out of the gate. Some folks 
are not going to get any usage or money in the door from their customers. So it's a really much like a lottery ticket thing. Whereas investing in an Amazon or a Google or an NVIDIA, how much can those stocks run up from here? This is always the right. question and, as well, right? Exactly. And they're not efficient expressions, of course. We'd love to invest in AWS separately, but you're investing a lot of property, plant, equipment to go for the ride. But just double clicking within that, let's maybe pick the NVIDIA supply chain, and then we can go down the Amazon Meta Google supply chain. In the NVIDIA supply chain, you've got ASML, which seems to have a dominant position in lithography. It doesn't seem to have any competition coming up soon. I don't know if you see that differently. Vico seems interesting as well. Seems no one's talking about them. $2 billion market cap company providing component supply. Any thoughts around where the NVIDIA supply chain can provide an off-angle bet that is less consensus than what people are talking about? Yeah, there's there's a variety of places to think about it, right? There's also many shared aspects of the supply chains, as you mentioned, right? And different, right? For NVIDIA, as well as Google's TPU and all that, right? There are, it starts off separate, right? But as you go further and further down the stack, it's actually, oh, everyone is serviced by this company, right? Like in the case of TSMC, Google's chip is made by TSMC. Intel, Intel's AI chips are made by TSMC. At least the AI, the AI specific one, not the GPU, uh, although part of the GPU is. NVIDIA's are obviously, Amazon's are all made by TSMC, but TSMC is maybe not a great expression because of the total cost of the chip, TSMC is only making a portion of it and they're doing really poorly in other areas. The PC uh, they cell make- phone sales are down. Like we want that pure expression on this GPU thesis. Exactly. But so at the same time, so there's these, if an enterprise reallocates, hey, this 10% of people who are going to get a new laptop no longer get a new laptop and we reallocate that to AI, which I think most people expect that to happen next year, if not more. I mean, it's already happened to a good extent this year as well for IT budgets, right? There, there, there's obviously going to be, hey, like TSMC is not actually the right way to play that, right? How do you express that more, right? So first, a lot of people are doing investments into what I've deemed like the AI head fakes, right? And in some cases, it's companies who stated they have huge AI business, but then when you drill into it, it's, no, you actually don't. Who are the like, AI it, maybe top like, three to five offenders? We can call them out here, shame them publicly. You know? Yeah, yeah. So it's- Give us the tea. <laughs> <laughs> that we know just to not focus on them. Go ahead. Sure, sure. Like on the AI head fake side, there is one of the things that I've I've mentioned quite a few times and I've broken down on on the newsletter, as well as more deeply in some of the client work we do, is that networking is very important, right? The cost of networking, after the AI chips you buy, networking is the second biggest cost, at least for building out AI compute, because you need to connect all these chips at very high speeds is the simple way to put it. And in this stream, all of the classical networking companies, most of them, are also hugely involved in telecom. And so they're like, oh yeah, we're huge AI winners. We're huge AI winners, of course, because we're networking, but it's sure you're networking, but there's only a few, most of the the, uh, businesses coming through other companies, right? So one example is Coherent Lumentum, right? That's a, they merged, or sorry, Lumentum, Coherent, and then 2.6 merged. Both of those companies were claiming they're huge AI winners. In reality, they're AI head fakes in that they claim this, but when you look at the business, it's like telecom is tanking like a rock because people aren't spending as much on telecom right now. There's huge 5G build outs as they're leveling off. Maybe there's some of these US subsidies that are going to come in that are going to help right. it for rural broadband and things like that. But really it's telecom build outs have slowed down. Right. Uh, you claim you're going to win AI business, but it's if you're buying the vertical stack of NVIDIA, then you're not buying those companies' chips. And if you're buying the vertical, if you're going through sort of the Google Broadcom supply chain using TPUs, you're also not buying those chips, Right in any meaningful volume. So it's like, yeah. actually these guys are coherent ahead, and then- coherence ahead. And Cisco's got some traction, but it's not a pure play expression, meaning they're in the telecom category. They've got, I don't know, half a billion in revenue, let's say on AI ethernet 
fabrics, et cetera. But relative to the company size, it's, if, if I'm investing in AI networking, if I'm investing in AI as an enterprise, am I going to just continue to scale up the, and I have on-premises, right? And Cisco owns on-premises AI right. networking. If I'm deploying random, if I'm a, whatever it is, right? But the problem is if I'm going to start buying AI hardware and on-premises, that's the only way I'm going to buy Cisco, first of all, because if I go through a cloud, I'm not really buying Cisco so too much. Let's redirect focus on the winners. We know avoid the AI head fake. That's risk factor here, right? There are a lot of shiny objects that say, we're doing AI, just like Long Island blockchain. <laughs> we saw that too, right? I'm very intrigued with global foundry services. Uh, they've got leading edge technology uh, versus others. They want a DOD contract that's got a, up to $3 billion over 10 years. They're benefit, <coughs> excuse me, they're benefiting from, I believe, Chips Act, as well as the European version of Chips Act. Any reactions on GFS? Obviously, a competitive Taiwan Semiconductor. It seems to have a more pure expression than Taiwan Semiconductor, but it isn't as precise as say like in, in ASML, let's say. Sure. So I wanted to uh, head back real quickly, just sure. close out the loop on networking, right? Yeah. If you're buying networking, you're either buying it through Broadcom or, or NVIDIA or some of the supply chain downstream from there. So the, like the winners, the not head fakes are like in the NVIDIA supply chain, NVIDIA makes all their optical transceivers with FabricNet, right? Um, in the case of others, like who are they getting high-speed optical components from or is companies like Inolite in China, right? You know, these are some of the winners. Marvel has a decent bit of business in the optic side, but less on the like pure networking side. So those are some of the winners there. Broadcom, of course, and Fabernet are the biggest. And we've written about this before, I think, publicly as well. But go, now going back to your question, which is global foundries. The difficulty with global foundries is like their AI sort of silicon is they don't have they don't really make much AI silicon because they've given up on the leading edge the f the furthest leading edge which is seven nanometer they stop there and if you look at Nvidia AI chips they're on five nanometer if you look at the newest TPU V5 it is five nanometer from TSMC so they're not making that component they're not doing any of the advanced packaging here and while they they are absolutely beneficiaries from some of these other things Chips Act European and American some Singaporean subsidies as well because people forget but their largest individual manufacturing location is in Singapore, not in the US or Europe. Anyways, they've got like these DOD contracts and such, and those are great. They're, they've got a lot of wins in automotive and RF. These are not really expressions of the AI trade really, right? So I would, and I don't think they've tried to talk up their AI wins too much, right? Relative to some of these head fakes. I wouldn't call them a head fake because- no, I, don't I don't think, think they are either. I don't think they are. They're the leader in, in photonics, for example. But so I've written about them being the leader in the photonics uh, space, best silicon photonics company for making the wafers. But you got to remember that not all optics are silicon photonics. A lot of them are like indium phosphide and things like that. And so I know, so China, so I, and, I'll make and, a and, and, uh, remember that, but thank you. <laughs> and then the other thing is that silicon photonics is such a small percentage of their revenue, right? And okay, even if it triples from here, it's still a small percentage of their revenue. Right? right. Mobile right. is a much larger percentage of their revenue, right? Look at their biggest customers. It's like it's Qualcomm and then it's AMD, but that business is shrinking as they move to TSMC. And then it's a bunch of other RF type companies, Corvo and Skyworks and Cirrus and all this kind of, all these companies in mobile. And so, yes, Global Foundry is doing great, but if the mobile industry is collapsing, that's far worse than on a revenue basis and a margin basis than the AI market quadrupling. So they're linked right? more to mobile. And if mobile is in decline, that's going to hurt them more than the benefits of being linked to leading edge technology and around photonics. 
Yeah, at least currently and for the next year. And that could change over time as the mobile and automotive numbers too. Automotive may collapse now with rates going so high and people may stop buying cars. We'll see. I mean, part of it is... Automotive boom stops. They're very linked to automotive as well. That's a super great move past. I thought the CapEx subsidy component was quite interesting from governments, which makes that attractive. Melton, where should we focus in terms of what companies would you like to focus on? I think, I'm sorry, on the CapEx subsidy side, I want to take a brief tour, right? We love to talk about policy. I think the geopolitics of semis and data centers are very interesting. And we've touched on that a little bit throughout our chat so far. So one of the things I want to talk about, I'd love to get Dylan's take on CHIPS Act, right? CHIPS Act came out. Everybody was so excited. Resurgence of the American semis industry. We're going to have a ton of fabs on shore. It's going to revitalize homegrown semis companies. We're now, what, a year and a half later, two years later, like, where's the money going? So Dylan, I'd love to get your unfiltered take on on chips and where the money's going. I'm an investor in a few very early stage R&D focused companies on the semi side, most materials innovation, but a lot of the postdocs and research labs, like they were counting on chips money. A lot of it was supposed to go towards R&D. Not to be found. So, Dylan, I'd love your sort of unvarnished take. What's going on with chips? Is it really the windfall that we thought it would be? And is it really just the big players? I think so far, right, it's Samsung and I believe TSMC who got allocations for their fabs. Like, where's that money going to go? Who's going to win? Is it actually going to fuel a bigger startup ecosystem? Is it just going to make the incumbents bigger? Like, where's that going to go? How's that going to influence some of the dynamics? Yeah, so I think part of it is, okay, there's 52 billions in direct sort of subsidies going out. And then there's the tax credit, which will probably be, I think the government said it'd be 20 billion to get it passed. But in reality, I think it'll end up being like 30 to 40 billion for the tax credit. Call it 80 to $90 billion getting injected into the US semiconductor industry. Just to be clear, there's over 100 billion being injected by China each year into the semiconductor industry, downstream and such. So it's, it's, Yes, this 80 to $90 billion over, who knows, five to seven years, five to nine years is great, but it's nowhere in comparison to what other countries are doing. This doesn't, while it slows the bleeding and, and does revitalize the U.S. Uh, semiconductor industry to a decent amount, it doesn't completely turn it around, yeah. right? A big chunk, I don't think any dollars have been allocated to the major projects quite yet. And that's this is part of the criticisms that people have had is they've been a little slow in allocating money. And I think it makes sense, right? They just want to, the chips team didn't even get fully signed into the building until much later, right? While the bill passed, then the, then they had to get allocated and then they could start hiring the people. And then those people could start working on the framework for the where they allocate money and, well, who, and what sort of strength. Who would be the expected winners though, if you were to play this out? You would think it'd be foundries because they want to reshore to reduce supply chain dependency risk around Taiwan. And that would suggest TSMC, they got a plant in Arizona, GFS, other foundries. Is that the right intuition here or... Yeah, so it's, it's going to be companies that are building fabs in the U.S., not companies that already have fabs. So I think the biggest winners are, of course, going to be Intel, TSMC, Samsung, and they're battling, right? And we don't know if they're going to all, they'll all get the tax credit, but they won't all get, I don't know if they will all get money from the actual direct subsidy. That's not been allocated yet, but it's a very high likelihood that Samsung's Taylor, Arizona, or sorry, Taylor, Texas, Intel's Ohio, and, and TSMC's Arizona all get probably half of the subsidies, if not more in collective, right? And then Micron in New York and a couple other companies like that are trying to get some big chunk. 
those are going to be the biggest, right? People who are building new fabs in the U.S. Global Foundries is not building a new fab in the U.S. as far as I know, right? They're doing some minor expansions where they'll get a little bit of money for. But for the most part, they're building their new fab in Germany and in France, yeah. if I recall correctly, with ST Micro and I can't remember the other company they're working with. So th those companies, they're going to get benefits from the European money, but not necessarily the U.S. money. And likewise, Intel is going to get a big chunk from the European money. TSMC is going to get a big chunk from European money as well, but it's all about who is building fabs. And so those are the major companies that I think will get money from the US, but there's also a huge chunk of the 52 billion, something like 10 to 15 billion is allocated to not leading edge fabs for packaging and research. And so that's the longer tail that there's very little clarity on what's been, what's being, what's going to make it right. It's pretty easy to estimate. Oh yeah. Intel's going to get X billion for Ohio and it'll, and, and it's not allocated. I bet like it's somewhere in a range, right? So who you know, would that be like ASC like, and Amcor? That'd be the beneficiaries of that or? There's some startups as well. There's Albonics. There's another one. I can't remember the name of it. Albonics is in Georgia. And there's a few other companies that are doing packaging type work. And then there's a lot of like R&D, right? Like money hasn't been allocated to universities yet. I bet I bet Purdue gets a big chunk, right? Purdue and Skywater. Skywater is a public company that's got a big deal with Purdue sign. And they're waiting to see what ChipSack allocation they get. But given that's one of the most comprehensive buildouts of R&D and university and education, there's a big pot of money for education and, and training around semiconductors. I bet Skywater gets a big chunk, right? And then in New York, there's a pretty comprehensive proposal for research and development, right? From IBM and Global Foundries and Tokyo Electron and many other companies are working together on this R&D proposal. And probably that gets a chunk of money, right? A couple billion maybe. There's, it's hard to say there is going to be a long tail of small amounts of money as well. That makes yeah. sense. And I think Ram from the earlier stage investing side, that's what I've been looking at, particularly when you're looking at these labs, you have people spending things out through technology procurement offices, capitalizing them with a little bit of money, but there is an expectation, hopefully at some point as this chips money starts getting released and it might be in slow little dribbles, there might be a great tide when it comes to the R and D side. I do think there's a lot of optimism um, on the very early stage side that some of that capital will help build what might become some of the next great American behemoths. That makes so. a lot of sense. No, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. Thank you for that. What, <coughs> excuse me, shall we shift to SoftBank Arm? Of course, they had an IPO recently. It's back down to the <laughs> offer price. Um, before we talk about Arm, I want to ask you a question. This is a very yeah, yeah. question. All right. I own, I own the portfolio. I've owned it for a long time now. Um, you own what? Sorry, I missed the word. Nvidia. Oh, Nvidia. Okay. Nvidia. Um, overpriced, underpriced. What do you think? Oh, that's a good one. I think it's not so insane on 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 Nvidia's next year's numbers. I think it's I think it's like not it's not relatively badly priced, right? I think next year's numbers are going to be something like seventeen dollars, eighteen dollars of APS, yeah. which is not a horrible uh, valuation given their stock is like at 400 bucks, right? So maybe something like that. So it's like a 20 times, 25 times next year's earnings. Yeah. I'm talking financial year, right? Because they're, but that's not such an insane number. It's not I at mean, all. Zoom traded at a 1200x EPS for a short period I mean, of time. So it's that's a lower PE ratio than Apple when we get here next year. And yeah. NVIDIA is delivering true earnings growth, whereas you have these legacy big tech companies that have inflated PE ratios and are, are not. For Dylan. So one of my favorite posts, Dylan, was post you did on Intel and basically Pat Gelsinger and his absolute failure as a CEO of Intel, but outlook on Intel. Yeah. Bullish, bearish. 
So I, I, I think Intel will slowly grind back to actually being competitive technologically, but in the meantime, they're going to lose a ton of business. So their earnings will be really bad. But as long as there's a glimmer of hope that they're going to return, I think that the stock won't, and there's a minimum floor on it, right? I don't think the US government would ever let Intel go bankrupt or stop because it's the only domestic R&D of leading edge. And so I think there's like a minimum value of Intel and whether that's like being a hundred billion dollar company or what, there is some minimum value. You have um, and so like, you, have a, you have a nice put option backed by. It's such a backhanded damning with soft praise compliment. Intel's value, value can only get so low. The government won't let them fall below here. They'll have some business. Again, the business we're in, the natural monopoly or the natural monopoly doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, as an allocator, you're looking for right. advantages. And frankly, that's an advantage for Intel. Now we can get to ARM. Sorry, I just think. No, no, I thought, thank you. Well, before we actually, I, I, I like the company by company approach. While we're on kind of the chip design category, we're focused on NVIDIA. I think Broadcom is a very compelling thesis. Uh, obviously, the, they're a fraction of the market cap of NVIDIA. They have multiple ways to play. They've got distribution. They have a VMware deal. Seems compelling to me. Uh, for me, it's hard to distinguish between the competitive edge of, say, a Broadcom versus a Marvel. And then you have these other players. I don't know if they're also RANs or real forces like Microchip, Renesas, and Murata. Any thoughts around chip designers that we should focus on or Broadcom. Yeah, so we, we did a really in-depth piece about Broadcom and how much money they're going to make from Google's orders. And there's some thought out there on, on Broadcom losing Google anytime soon. If it happens, it would be in 2027, just to be clear, right? So in that meantime, Broadcom is going to make tens of billions of dollars from Google doing their AI chip. So it's, it's tremendously profitable for them. And likewise, right, there's other aspects of their business that are pretty good, like the networking. Now, of course, other aspects like storage related and telecom related are not doing well, but those will eventually come back and the AI is really strong there. And then there's a compelling thesis around VMware. And this is what one of my yeah. analysts did because he's previously covered software very detailed. What they can take VMware's SG&A down is insane. And VMware is, is overspending. There's so many people at VMware who work in sales and marketing and such that don't contribute to earnings that much. And so with VMware, they can probably slash the SG&A spending to one third of what it is wow. today, if not more, and the business won't be too affected. And so there's a lot of positives around, hey, like what happens when VMware is actually managed from? Right. So I think what comes uh, in the yeah, winter? Guess, guess who was the prior CEO? It was Pat Gelsinger. <laughs> yeah. No, it just seems like a very well-managed company in terms of their approach and to execution. And they got, they can keep, they got a nice M&A pipeline around them. Any thoughts on Marvel and how do you see that competitive positioning versus these other players we've talked about? Yeah, so Marvell is, is is an interesting company. They have they've been claiming they're an AI winner in, in areas that they're not, but they've also got some very big wins, right? So not the current generation Amazon chip, but the next generation Amazon chip that will be released early to mid next year in their cloud is done by Marvell, right? And that's going to be really great. Depends on how much Amazon wants to invest, right? They've been behind in AI. If you look at some of the investments they've been doing around Anthropic most recently and things like that, it could be that Amazon is going to say, screw it, we're going to kick it into high gear. We're gonna we're gonna build it, and they will come. 
kind of attitude, right? And if that happens and they order a ton of their next generation chip with Marvell, then Marvell could be a huge beneficiary. And then of course, on the optical networking side, Marvell is doing really good as well. There, so there's some positives, but areas like storage for them and telecom, again, are actually very weak. And there's some other aspects that they're trying to get into automotive and that that push doesn't seem amazing quite yet. There's a lot of puts and takes around Marvell, but we, we've done some detailed work around them. It's really look for growth in AWS. And if I don't know if Amazon reports before Marvell, if they do and Amazon reports well, then you might want to go along Marvell. So well, not, not growth for Amazon's business, but growth for Amazon's CapEx, right? Correct. Absolutely. That's right. Let's, let's get to the topic of ARM though, right? Because I feel like this is the, yes. the IPO. It was big news. Obviously a lot of headwinds there for SoftBank. Masa's my favorite gambler. The man just has balls of steel. <laughs> ARM was a big bet. So on Varnish take, did the market price it correctly? I held back. I was like, I want to wait and see how this thing trades because I feel like up is up, down is up. Same. Public equities are chaotic. I feel like semis generally have been very chaotic, very volatile this year. But Dylan, what's your take? Yes, I think that SoftBank, I, I don't know much about SoftBank to be clear, right? Although he did take like a 75 you heard of WeWork? Loan out on arm. <laughs> yeah, no, don't, not into WeWork. Um, okay. Although I have worked in them a couple of times. Pretty good service. Although I, I think just a willingness to bet on things that may or may not be trends. Masasan has a willingness to write really big checks, take really big swings at things he misses, but when he hits hard. Right. Well said. So ARM, was the price correctly? I like, I like ARM as there's all these like risks. Oh, look, 25% of the revenues from their China organization, which joint venture, which they don't have control over. And, oh, and they've had his, uh, a history of trouble there in the past. Hey, look, risk five is happening. But then on the flip side of the coin, there's nothing anyone can do in smartphone to get off of ARM anytime soon. And ARM charges like 50 cents a phone, roughly, currently. Qualcomm charges Apple about $12 a phone for their licensing. So it's, and then, and then on, more on top of that for the actual chips, for the 5G chips. So it's for the licensing alone, if Qualcomm can charge Apple 12 bucks, why can't ARM charge Apple, or, or sorry, Qualcomm, five bucks? The technology is just as critical. It really turns so around. The, sort of the bull case there is like, why can't they just extract more value out of mobile? And they are, that's their plan. They're in a lawsuit with Qualcomm for a reason. Makes sense. And they brought in new management, SoftBank did, with a CEO that's focused on this mission. And their strategy is raise prices. And then the, the analysis turns on what are those contract maturities? When can they raise prices? I don't know if you've got any insight into that. So it's, it's a steady rate of price increases. It's not all at once. So already the current gen is more expensive than the prior gen and next gen will be more expensive and the gen after that will be more expensive to flow through, but there are rising, raising prices over time and each generation is a step function up. So is there a sense of the magnitude and pace of price increases? Clearly what matters here is the earnings growth. So if they're growing price increase 10%, that's very different than say migrating to $13 within five years, like Qualcomm. Yeah, yeah. Arms, their plan is to almost triple EPS, right? From calendar year 23 to calendar year 25, right? And a lot of that is off the backs of price increases. Their revenue is going to grow something like 11, 12% next year. And we have them growing almost 30% in 2025. And a lot of that is price increases. Some of that is increased penetration in data center and automotive, but a lot of that is just price increases, right? Some in data center. Simple business. I like that. You don't have to invest in anything. You raise prices. Right. So I like that thesis. And you mentioned, you, so you have financial forecasts and models for all these various firms. Yep. 
We'll have to follow up with you on that. I don't remember seeing that as a subscriber to your newsletter, but well, that- so it's, we, the newsletter is just one thing we also, and we sometimes put models in there and such the service, the newsletter only started the paid newsletter, November 21, when someone didn't pay for report, in fact, <laughs> just as a funny heads up, whereas the been doing work on for consulting since 2017, and there's five of us. And certainly there's a ton of work on the newsletter, but not everyone is working on newsletter stuff, right? That's only just a portion of the work. Basically, what Dylan's saying is all of his best stuff is behind the paywall and it's really good. So, we're going to have a follow up chat, Dylan. Looking forward to learning more around that. Vico is another company just focusing on the component suppliers that I I feel like the market may not be paying attention to. Seems like a two billion market cap uh, company has got a, a dominant position on supplying equipment for wafer fabrication. Any initial reactions on that? Yes, Vico's got some niches where they're doing well, uh, but you also have to remember they've been dominant in hard drives and hard drives have been falling off like crazy. And they, that used to be a big chunk of the revenue, over 30% at some points. And now that's falling and falling, of course. Uh, there's other aspects like they used to do great in LED equipment and they've, that's fallen off and off. But there's other aspects where they're doing decently. They're, they have a lot of share in HBM manufacturing for certain process steps. Although that could be, they could be losing share there. UV masks. There's, they're a pretty complex company and it's, maybe we should do a post on them because there's a lot of puts and takes, right? Areas that are doing really poorly and areas that are doing well. From a fundamentals basis, the revenue earnings growth is there and valuations seem interesting. So that's just my, at a top level view, have to get closer to it. But yeah, let's, shall we shift gears, Melton? Yeah, I had one final topic that I'm curious about, and this is the shift to open source. I think I first started growing aware of the dynamics of open source versus closed source in the semiconductor value chain when I was looking at NVIDIA's sort of CUDA dominance and the advent of PyTorch and how that's changing some of the dynamics around video GPUs. But more generally, then I started talking more, talking pardon, to more people in the semi space. There's now, I think, a movement to open source more aspects of chip design, chip testing. So Dylan, just generally would love to get your take. I feel like my perception as someone who's newer to the world of semis is the competitive advantage and the ROI has always been in owning the IP, right? This is a very IP heavy industry from design all the way through process, fab, all the way through and distribution. But now with the advent of all things open source everywhere, starting with the software, but now also moving further upstream into the design side as as well. Do you think this design trend towards more open source is actually a real trend or is it more of a narrative? And then I guess in my mind, and again, this may demonstrate my ignorance of the value chain, I guess there's been some narrative with the specification when it comes to chip design as we see more use cases, this idea of BYOD, where you bring your own design and the fab owns less of the IP. Is that an actual trend? What are just your views generally on how the broader open source movement is playing a role in the way the semis industry is shaping up and some of the competitive dynamics around the value of IP. Sorry, that's a, a lot of things mashed together probably, but I think you you understand the sort of direction I'm headed here and, and where the thought process is. Yeah, so the difficult thing about open source is open source has to be a strong movement and it only works when a lot of people are incentivized to do open source. And, and so in hardware, the incentive structure has been really tough to get anyone to do open source. Uh, whereas in software, it's been great. And the mixture of the two, like software for hardware, think operating systems, think think things like that, frameworks for machine learning, those, there's a huge incentive structure to open source. And so I think that the open source ecosystem and drive and push 
for hardware is a bit overblown. Yes, Risk Five will work, but all the successful Risk Five stuff is closed source, right? You look at Sci Five or Tenstorrent, like these companies aren't open sourcing their Risk Five IP; they're selling it. So in a sense, they're building on top of something open source, right? Just like a Red Hat is building on top of open source Linux, right? And they might contribute a good bit, but all the good stuff is behind the wall. And or I guess part of IBM now, but in the same sense, Google and Meta, right? They did TensorFlow and PyTorch, and those are open source. But a lot of the good stuff they're keeping behind the wall as their own secret sauce, right? Google with XLA and and Meta with how they deploy and use use PyTorch and what kind of models and things like that, right? Same with Google. They those are areas that are interesting. But the ad with how PyTorch has been rising, how OpenAI's Triton has been rising, it is it does help lower the software moat, but there's still a significant barrier for folks uh, in, in the software world to, right. to, to not use NVIDIA. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe the open source software side is a great way to build utilization network effects. But then on the hardware side and the design side, a lot of that is closed source, but in support of these open source development models. So there's kind of a relationship there, but that IP is still really defensible, really investable. I I had two more rapid fire questions for you uh, here. One is around China. So suppose China makes a move on Taiwan, who are immediate winners and losers? Obviously, Taiwan semiconductors in the loser bucket. You would think that others that are not in Taiwan, other foundries would be a winner. Any instant reactions on there, firms that would do, that could be on the winner column there? Sure. There's there's a wide variety of who could be a winner and a loser, right? In, okay. in that. And I think it's tough to judge who's a winner, right? Because you could say, you could argue like in, the, in a risk of any geopolitical stuff, like Intel's obviously a winner, but it's wait, all their chips are packaged. A vast majority are packaged in Malaysia, which is right spitting distance. And if there's any move made on Taiwan, I'm sure Malaysia, which is pretty friendly to China would also be supportive or things like that. So there's like huge parts of the supply chain that are focused right there. And it's even if you did have Malaysia, it wasn't an issue, just Taiwan left. It's, there's so many aspects of the chips around it. Hey, again, a laptop, Intel couldn't ship chips for laptops because many other chips from for in the laptop are produced in Taiwan. So you can't actually make the laptop. It's like any, a lot obvious, of this any obvious winners though, where there's no supply chain risk and say, you know what? Oh, that player is just going to do just fine. Yeah. Like companies like Applied Materials, Lam Research, ASML, they're going to do a lot better because their supply chain is not mostly in China. They do sell a lot to China. And while that'd be like a third of their business disappearing overnight, you would have a humongous effort to rebuild in the West or right. allied countries and such, Japan and such immediately. So those companies are obvious winners in any altercation. Makes sense. I, I know you had this interesting exchange with Sam Altman. We can conclude on that one. You had a tweet. I'll read it out for the benefit of the audience. He said, Hilariously, it makes economic sense for OpenAI to use Google Cloud with Google's chipset, TPU V5E, to inference some models rather than NVIDIA A100s and H100s via Microsoft Azure, despite their favorable deal. Of course, there's a whole host of political and business reasons this probably never happens. I don't have a question for you other than like your reactions and what was, it? that was just a funny observation. You're, you call the spade a spade here. It, it doesn't apply to GPT-4. It only applies to 3.5 Turbo. But yeah, I think if you look at the economics of it, and even if you give uh, OpenAI a massive discount on GPUs and you give uh, you give them only a similar discount to some of Google's bigger customers like Character AI and Anthropic on TPUs, you would end up with 
actually, it makes economic sense to use Google's chip for this, right? And there's a lot of reasons why that's hard on software. It's only limited for a certain size model, but I think it's very, makes sense, right? To do it, right? And of course, Sam is, hey, this is like marketing and, and recruiting, but I don't think that's that's fair. It's just like the actual numbers if you try and model out the cost of running a model in the cloud and so on and so forth. So it's quite funny. OpenAI is not being CapEx optimal because of other considerations. And I think one other observation. I think one other aspect actually to to touch on is it is good for 3.5 turbo, but how long are they going to be using 3.5 turbo? Like probably next year, mid next year or whatever that is, no one's going to use 3.5 turbo, right? There's going to be a 4.5 turbo and and maybe a five and right. Who's going to use 3.5 turbo, right? So it's like the models will get bigger and this area where Google's chips are better might disappear for the for for the models that OpenAI runs, right? So you got to have that flexibility too. And GPUs offer that supreme flexibility. So Dylan, how can listeners learn more about your offering? They can I recommend they subscribe to your Substack. It's fantastic. Meltem and I are subscribers. We look forward to it every week. Uh, how else can people follow you and learn more? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. On Twitter, Dylan522P, go check out our the newsletter, of course. And then we have further services on top of that. You'll see the newsletter and, and see if you're if that's the, if you're a target customer or not for that kind of business, the consulting, the research, the deeper dives than, than what's on the newsletter. But the newsletter is incredibly deep for most people. I will say for me, personally speaking, I've learned a lot. You've made me so much smarter. So deeply grateful to you and your research team Likewise. for putting out such high quality content, especially in an area where I feel like there's a lot of people who have very little knowledge just spouting off on the internet, many such cases, but to actually read something that's rooted in fundamental analysis, financial analysis, like the, the coverage you have is phenomenal. So thank you. I feel smarter. And that I is- I echo that. Terrific. It's A plus content. Thank you for that. Part of what our job is as allocators is finding sources of expertise are at the top of their mountains. It's really- our job is to discern and identify who has that skill and expertise. And I know you have that. So thank you for your time. Maybe we do it again after earning season and looking forward to, to learning more and I'll follow up as well. All right. Let's call it a wrap. Thank you, Dylan. Sure. Thank you for having me. Dylan, and maybe one day I will have achieved like personal Valhalla when some analysis covers some crypto chip. Maybe one day we'll get there. We have to become a, a sector of consequence. Well, Whole weave is the connection between crypto and semiconductor, that pivot of that business. I think they're the okay, only so one that's done that. I just want to state a very important fact, and I'm going to make a chart and I'm going to share, but a very important fact. Okay. Crypto changed market pricing, profitability, market fundamentals for GPUs, ASICs, storage when Chia launched, right? Yeah. Huh. Went ape shit, right? So I think people have this view that crypto is like just this little backwater and it doesn't actually impact the world of hardware. That is simply false. Electrical equipment, like connectivity equipment, electrical substations, for a while, when the mining boom was really heating up in the last cycle, you couldn't even get electrical infrastructure for your data center, right? So I do think what people mistake is like these really hot sectors where there's a lot of capital available, they do fundamentally sometimes start to shift and change pricing dynamics. That's how NVIDIA got on my radar, right? Is I looked at how crazy things were going. I was trying to get my hands on an RTX 3080, right? It was priced at 3X MSRP and I had to get it through broker. And I was like, I need to own the brokers. I need to own the hosting. (laughs) Like there's big money. And I will say crypto cycles, whether for better or worse, have driven really interesting 
narratives and market dynamics on the hardware side as well. So that's something we can delve more into. Help to usher in AI is the headline here. We'll take credit for that. Well, the entire AI, thing. AI is a bigger bucket, I think, um, much more aspirational. <laughs> Great. Let's shall we call it a wrap? Yep. Terrific. Thank you both. All right. Alrighty, bye. Take care. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening in on the episode. Remember, in the world of investing, the road less traveled often leads to the greatest rewards. I'm Ram Alawalia, your host and chief investment officer at Lumida Wealth where we specialize in the craft of alternative investments. Invest wisely, stay ahead of the curve, and stay non-consensus.